Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 217, and today's guest is Ryan Dennehy, founder and CEO of Electric. Entrepreneurship is not for everyone, but for some people, they were just born with that ability to recognize opportunities in the market that are ripe for disruption. And let's just face it, some people are just born with that plain old hustle and desire to succeed. Take Ryan, for example, a successful three-time entrepreneur who started his first company at the age of 17, an action sports video production company that was acquired by USA Today while he was still in college. His second company, Swarm Mobile, was acquired by Groupon, and it was his experience running this company where he witnessed firsthand the frustration and problems with IT for companies. Someone had to wear the IT support hat internally, especially for a small to mid-sized company, and in some cases, it's the founder, as was the case at Swarm, which triggered that aha moment, there has to be a better way. Electric was launched to solve this problem, and the company recently closed a $40 million Series C round of funding to revolutionize IT by making it simple, accessible, and cost-effective for businesses everywhere. The company provides real-time IT support to 25,000 users and centralized IT management to over 400 customers. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like advice for founders on figuring out your ideal customer profile before leaping into a business 100% of your time, some great stories around building his first company and why it was an advantage starting it as a teenager. Think no fear. The details on Swarm Mobile and the lessons learned from this experience, what led Ryan down the path of starting Electric and the incredible value they are providing companies, a discussion around branding and how he wanted to make the Electric brand bold and memorable, what founders should be thinking about as it relates to building a company's culture, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can set up a user profile on VentureFizz? It is a feature that gives you access to personalized content, job seeker tools, and administrative features to help you manage your email subscriptions. To create a user profile and maximize your experience on VentureFizz, go to VentureFizz.com backslash register to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ryan. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because you're a three-time serial entrepreneur at its truest definition. So we have a lot to talk about with the different companies that you've started and, of course, the company that you're building now, Electric. But, um, you know, one of the things that I notice a lot of entrepreneurs really uh, kind of take a misstep they have an idea and they're like, the world needs this. So they kind of like, okay, we're going to go build this and it's going to be the next great company. Yet where they trip up is they don't really think about the flip side. Like what does the customer actually need? So I've noticed in companies that you built, you spent upfront time thinking about what is your ideal customer profile before actually going to you know, market and, and you know, accelerating sales. Or so, so why do you think that is a, is a benefit as it relates to starting and building a business? Well, 40%, I think is, is the stat, 40% of startups go out of business because nobody wanted what they built in the first place, right? And so people get so obsessed with, with getting a product to market and thinking that building the product is the accomplishment. The reality is every company that goes out of business has a product. The problem is that the, most of them that go out of business have a product that people didn't want or need. And, and so that ultimately is the crux of whether or not the company is going to be successful. And I learned that the hard way with, with my first two companies. You know, my first company was a vertical ad network. 
So we sold advertising on other people's websites. Um, and it was, we, we had a, a, a niche in the market that was unique. It was uh, this sort of group of extreme sports websites um, that were often too small to get on the radar of a major national advertiser. So we could group them all together and we could go bring this larger audience and have a real conversation with like Gatorade or Toyota or whoever. Problem is there were like 200 other companies doing the same thing and they were good enough at selling ads on those websites that like we didn't really have any kind of unique differentiator. And so my co-founder and I spent a lot of time, I think mostly lying to ourselves about how we were different or why we were different and just trying to like force something into existence that, you know, the customers time and again, were kind of telling us like, well, we already have someone else who does that for us. And they're like pretty good. And, and I think it's, it's hindsight's 2020, but at the time it's just so easy to get caught up in your own idea and, and get obsessed with an idea that you kind of don't want to hear all the reasons why it's wrong. Um, and, you know, we ended up having a, a successful exit with that company. It was, a, it was a small exit, but we sold it to USA Today Sports um, at the beginning of 2008. And so I'm not, I, I'm not unhappy with how that turned out. However, it could have been a substantially larger company if we had just listened to the customer, right? Like what the customer was telling us, like, we don't need another group of people selling banner ads on our website. Like we want video or we want, you know, ad optimization technology or whatever, but we didn't listen. Um, you know, and then my second company swarm, which was a retail analytics platform for small business retailers, we did a, a much better job listening to the customer, which is why we built what we built. No small business retailer, brick and mortar retailer knew how many people came into and out of their store every day. So we built a device that would measure foot traffic. It would, it would compare it to their sales. So you could see if sales were up or down as a result of the store being slow or the sales associates not being effective, getting people to buy stuff. Um, which was good, but then the kind of fatal flaw there was it was very much a nice to have, not a need to have. And so that was kind of the second big learn. So that business was definitely more successful than our first company. Um, it solved a really obvious pain. It just wasn't a top, a top three problem that the retailer would, uh, you know, would think about. And so when I ultimately decided to start electric, I, I, a lot of how we started this business was colored through the lens of, okay, we need to make sure that we're solving something that's, that's really important for the customer. Um, and it's gotta be, it, it's gotta be something that's a need to have, not a nice to have. And, uh, you know, so that, that really guided my, you know, my thinking and kind of the early research phase of, of how we decided to, or who we decided to go after. Yeah. And that's a common theme I've seen for other uh, successful entrepreneurs that I've had on the podcast where they spend a lot of that upfront time talking to customers, diagnosing their pain, figuring out the solution before just launching something in the market and hoping people are going to buy it. So Yeah. Cause you can't fix it, right? Like if, if at the end of the day, the product's a nice to have, not a need to have, or, or you're, you're taking the right product, but to the wrong segment of the market, like you, you can't, no amount of effort or capital is going to, is going to fix that. Like that's the, the highest leverage thing you can do in the early days of a company is hone in on the most important problem for the most important customer that you're trying to solve it for. And, and everything else can follow after that. Everything else is way easier once you solve that part first. Well, let's rewind the clock. Like you've already given some great uh, insight into things that you've already done, but uh, we're going to dig a little bit deeper. So where did you grow up? 
uh, what were you like as a child? Because I mean, you started your first business, I think it was at 17. So I'm, yeah. like, I'm, I'm interested in hearing kind of your foundational years. Um, it's funny. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't grow up in a particularly entrepreneurial household. Uh, you know, and I did, I was not a good student. I think I, I always felt like I, I felt like I was reasonably smart, but I just thought school was so boring and I thought it was kind of a waste of time. And, uh, and, and so I just was always thinking about things I could do that weren't, that didn't involve getting a full-time job somewhere or that as a teenager didn't involve like, you know, going and working at like Kinko's or something. I don't even know if Kinko's is still around, but whatever. <laughs> right. was. Making, making um, copies. <laughs> yeah. Making, making copies or making coffee for people or, you know, or, or, or whatever. And so, yeah, when I was in, um, when I was, uh, was a freshman in high school, there was a, a skateboard shop down the street from my house. And I just started showing up one day, like after school, and I would just like hang out and like annoy the college kids behind the register who were working there. And eventually I was like telling them what to order, you know, so I'm like, hey, if you want to like sell more stuff, like I'm at the skate park every weekend with my friends, like you guys don't stock the right things, like here's what you should order. <laughs> and then I eventually started like, sort of helping out, like, whatever, just doing odd jobs. And then by the time I was, uh, by like a year and a half later, I was managing the store. So the owner was making a fair amount of money in real estate and kind of just wanted to wind the store down, but he had time left on the lease and he had all this inventory he had to sell. So he basically said, look, open the store after school. So like, it was preposterous. Like the store was only open from 3 PM to 6 PM on weekdays. And then it was open, uh, I think it was like nine to five or nine to six on weekends. I was the only employee. And it was my job to basically order enough new inventory that would sell through to keep people coming in, but really just move as much of the, you know, I think he had about a hundred thousand dollars of inventory in the store and just like try to move it off. Cause he was just really trying to wind the thing down. So that was a lot of fun because, you know, I think at like it was a 15 and a half or 16, like I had to run a whole store. Um, mm. And, and so that, that was a lot of fun, but you know, what I, what I really wanted to do was, uh, at that time was I wanted to be a film producer and I specifically, because I was into extreme sports, you know, I was a big skier. I liked surfing. I was really into mountain biking. I also skate had been skateboarding my whole life. And so, um, you know, my, my dream was to produce an action sports DVD, you know, get some companies to sponsor it, go fly around the world, shoot some cool stuff, release it. Uh, and so when I was 16, I basically started going to any, any mountain biking event on the East coast that I could go to applying for media credentials. The mountain bike industry was small enough where I could go to these events and I could meet the athletes and the athletes were cool. And I think they thought I was older than I was, um, you know, and I started getting a lot of really, really good footage and editing stuff and putting it on the internet. This was before YouTube posting it on message boards and, and, and getting a pretty big following there. And so, yeah, when I was 17, I basically just said like, it's, it's, it's now or never, like I need to write a sponsorship proposal, get it in front of any company in the mountain bike industry who has a marketing budget and, and, and go try to shoot something. And so that's what I did after school one day, I went to Barnes and Noble, I bought a copy of bike magazine and I ripped out every page of advertising in it. And I mailed the sponsorship proposal to any company that was running an ad in bike magazine. Wait, so you, you, you mailed it like, like physically yeah, I burned a DVD. I had like a five minute long demo reel. I had a, like a three or four page written sponsorship proposal. And my assumption at the time was if they're running an ad in bike magazine, they have a marketing department or they have a marketing budget. So I probably mailed out like 40 of these packages and then just 
would would call people, you know, every other day. Hey, did you get the thing? Let's talk about it. It was a good industry to cold call in because like most of the marketing people I was calling were like former athletes and not very old and thought it was cool that like a 17 year old was calling them. So eventually I was able to get about get about $5,000 in, in sponsor money across a bunch of different companies. The challenge was that I didn't have any distribution for the film. And the thing is, I just assumed I could get a distribution deal. There was one company that um, would distribute extreme sports DVDs to retailers. Um, and so me being naive, I just assumed that like, Hey, if I had these sponsors and I had these cool athletes in it, they would, they would sell it. So I told all my sponsors that I had distribution, uh, only to close all the sponsor deals and go to this company, video action sports. And they were like, yeah, no, like our catalog's full for the year. Like we're good. I was like, what do I do? Am I going to give them, I'm not going to give the money back, but like, I gotta, I gotta like figure out how to get the, the word out. So uh, one of my favorite ski movie producers was this guy, Josh Berman. And I called him and I, and uh, I cold emailed him and I was like, Hey, I'm trying to do this thing, but I'm kind of screwed. And so he called me and he was like, Hey, I was in the same situation when I made my first ski movie. So my brother and I cold called every ski shop in America and we sold like thousands of copies of our, of our movie. So he's like, so if you can't figure out distribution, just like you and your friends can literally call every bike shop in America at the time, there were 3,500 of them. And like, you could, you can, you're going to end up selling a bunch of copies. Like you'll sell and, and you'll actually make more money. So, so you became your own distributor. Well, that was the backup plan. But then, but then what ended up happening was this company in Utah called Lizard Skins. Um, they make like grips and gloves and, and, and different accessories. They were one of my, um, they were one of my sponsors. And one day I was talking to the owner, Brian, and he basically told me that like they had their own distribution facility. They had a warehouse in Orem, Utah. And they had direct relationships with every bike shop in America. They had a catalog. And, and so one thing led to another. And I was like, what if you distribute it? You know, and then we'll work out some kind of a split. And it works well for you because if you distribute it, you'll recoup all the costs of sponsoring the movie. It's like it's a home run. Right. Um, so we hammered that deal out. And yeah, he hired like two interns from BYU to cold call every bike shop in America <laughs> for me. But it was great. We sold Brilliant. Like, we sold over 4,000 copies. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I recouped my advance in like a week and a half. It was nuts. <laughs> so I mean, that's just such a great story of grit. And that's why I like talking about the foundational years and hearing stories like this. Like I, I have two teenage girls at home and I, like, this is the type of stuff I have them listen to. Cause I'm like, just, just ask, right. I mean, you, you, you were bold to ask for media credentials at a, you know, at a young age, you created something and you had to figure out a way to how to get it out there and, and, and you made it happen. So I love and, that. And, it, and like the, and a lot of entrepreneurs talk about this, like when you're, you're young enough where you don't, you, you haven't been rejected enough to know what is or isn't possible. Like that's, that's the best part. Like you're only going to be young once. And part of the benefit of being that young and starting a company is like, you, you don't know what, what is or isn't possible. And so I think like, there, there are a few things that can match the confidence of a 17 year old boy, right? Like, <laughs> you know, that's the time to start the business because you're just going to go nuts and no one's going to be able to tell you no. So how did this translate into running an, the online ad network in college? Yeah. So um, I got a cold email one day, uh, right at the beginning of my freshman year. I was going to, I knew I was going to produce one more DVD, but I was already kind of losing interest. Like I discovered that I enjoyed the sales and marketing and distribution of my films. I, I was beginning to enjoy that more than like sitting outside with a camera in my hand for eight hours. Um, 
And so I knew I was probably not going to produce any more DVDs. And, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next was I, it sort of flirted with like, maybe there's more money doing like music videos and stuff like that. Um, but I got a cold email one day from this, from this company in Los Angeles that said, Hey, you know, we are an extreme sports focused online media network. We're building a destination website where we're going to host and sell extreme sports videos. And you're one of the, you know, you're one of the producers that we've identified. Like we want to host your content and sell it on our website. So I responded to these guys right away. And I was like, love what you're doing. Like, let's find a way to work together. One thing led to another, Rudd, who is the, 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 the founder of the company and ultimately became, we became business partners on, on, on that company. Once I got a, a window into what he was doing, I was like, well, let's do this. Like, I'll, I'll sell you my back catalog of footage, but then I'll join, I'll, I'll come on board and I'll just run business development for you. And I, cause I already know all the other action sports video producers and all these guys, like, I can just go sign up other people. Like I have credibility because I was one of them, right? Um, so yeah, so the beginning of my sophomore year of college, I basically sold them the rights to, to my sort of small film library um, in exchange for, for a full-time job and some equity in the business. And then, uh, and then right, right around that time, we pivoted from trying to sell videos on the internet, which was just way too early. Like people weren't didn't want or need to do that. Like we weren't going to be the ones to change consumer behavior, but we realized like the real, the real money was in all of these extreme sports websites that were dependent on ad revenue, but weren't big enough to go after the big advertisers. So we sort of pivoted from a destination website selling content to just selling ads on other people's sites. And obviously that scaled. And as you mentioned before, you sold it to USA Today Sports. So, and the timing was great because it was 2008 before the meltdown. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, it was funny because the website, we had burned through like almost a million dollars building this website that nobody cared about, right? Like consumers didn't want or need to buy extreme sports videos on the internet because they were very comfortable buying DVDs and it was a better experience to just like buy the DVD and watch it on your big screen TV. Um, you know, and, and there was nothing unique about the content we were producing. So we burned through a bunch of money. Basically the business went nowhere. And then with probably six months of cash left, we pivoted to doing the ad network. And, you know, that was my first window into like real product market fit. Within three months of starting the ad network, we had a substantially larger business than in the previous year trying to build this destination website. So, uh, yeah. And it, it, I mean, if we had waited another six months to try to sell the business or get funding, it never would have happened. I mean, the economy crashed not long after we, we got the deal done with USA Today. And then you stayed for four years. So w w what did you learn during your time there? Kind of like, you know, being in a more of a corporate environment. It was a blast. I mean, like being, <laughs> being raised in the like bowels of a public company, <laughs> it was like kind of a, <laughs> it, it was cool because I mean I was I was a I was a full time employee of USA Today for from half the midpoint of my junior year of college um, through the end I almost dropped out and then I almost transferred to USC and then I just finally said screw it like Hofstra is fine it's like my course loads light and I can work full time out of my dorm room um, which is what I did and then I stayed for another you know another two and a half years after that after college I moved to LA um, my co founder Rudd he was the youngest executive at USA Today at the time when they bought the company. And then he got promoted and I became the VP and GM of our business unit. I think when I was like 23. 
So then I became, I sort of took the record from him. I beat him by two years. Uh, it was good. I mean, you know, I had, I had full PL responsibility for a $10 million business when I was 23. Uh, I was terrible. I couldn't hire. I think my, most of my employees, some of, some of my employees who worked for me then, like we still stay in touch and I think it's all water under the bridge now, but like, I had no, no idea what I was doing. I think most of the people who worked for me hated me because um, you just don't know how to be a good boss to grown adults when you're, yeah, you don't have the experience like, <laughs> like when you're 23. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but it was good. I mean, we, we, we took the USA today sports digital group from being not a player at all um, in the digital sports landscape to a top 10 sports property uh, in the time we were there. So it was a lot of fun. Um, awesome. But yeah, but after four years, just said, you know what, selling ads on websites is not where I want to spend the rest of my career. <laughs> so, so how'd you come up with the idea for Swarm? Uh, my co-founder and I were just, uh, we were living in Santa Monica at the time and, and we, we knew we wanted to leave USA Today and, and we would just spend a lot of evenings in Rudd's office, like brainstorming pockets of opportunity in the market. And the, the thing we kept coming back to is like, what are the things that web publishers can't live without or that online businesses can't live without that offline businesses don't have yet? And the thing we kept coming back to is like, I, we lived and died off of Google Analytics. We're like, but if you're a store owner, you don't have Google Analytics for your store, right? Like you don't, you have no idea how many people are coming into and out of the store. And our view is like, all these businesses are beginning to use tablet-based point of sale systems that are in the cloud. They're using these new types of payment solutions. So like we felt like the market was ready, you know, the average store owner was ready to embrace more technology. And, uh, and so, yeah, so we basically just built this, we built this device. It was a Wi-Fi router that instead of broadcasting a Wi-Fi signal, it would listen for Wi-Fi antennas in the store, like the Wi-Fi antenna on your phone. So it was like a proxy for, for people. Um, later we, we changed it. So it was actually just a passive infrared sensor that would detect people coming into like in and out of the door. Um, it was a lot more accurate, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that was an insane business. We didn't know anything about like unit economics. Like we were selling a, you know, $50 a month per location product with a direct sales team, which like obviously doesn't work. <laughs> and building hardware too, right? Like that's, we only raised three and a half million dollars total. For the whole company ever like in the three years we were in business we only raised three and a half million dollars and uh, yeah i mean building hardware i mean it almost sank the company twice we um you know we got totally screwed over by this factory in taiwan i mean this happens to everybody who tries to build hardware who doesn't really know what they're doing like the factory totally took us for a ride and then we, we eventually met these guys who had designed the original beats by dre headphones um so when, when Beats initially came up with the idea, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, they had a company called Monster Cable. Right. Yes. I've heard this. Produce all the that. headphones for the, yeah, they didn't, they just brought it to Monster. And so these two guys, DL and Einstein, um, so Einstein's his real name, Einstein Galang. Um, they, they were these like industrial designers. So they, they developed the original headphones. Um, and so once the relationship sort of soured between monster cable and beats and they brought their production in house, you know, they were like, they were looking for work. And at the time there like, wasn't a lot of work in Silicon Valley for hardware designers. 
uh, and this is right after uh, Nest got acquired for $3 billion by Google. Mm-hmm. So we got introduced through mutual friends and they were like, oh, this is kind of like Nest, but for businesses. So they saw the vision. And so they were willing to do a lot of work for us, like effectively for free. We just had to buy them business class tickets to Hong Kong, <laughs> you know, but like they, sh- you know, it was funny because the factory we were using, the, the day they showed up in the factory, the factory owner went, went to the machines that had all of our molds in it. Cause all the, when you build hardware, there's a, there's a press and there's a mold and the, and the plastic is injected into the mold and the molds are really expensive to make. Um, and generally as, as, as the customer, you have, uh, you own your molds, right? As soon as DL and Einstein walked into the factory, people started taking hammers to our molds because they knew it was going to happen. Oh my God. What? That's insane. Molds were like 25 grand each. And again, we didn't raise much money. So yeah, whatever. So they ended up moving us to the Monster Cable factory, this company called PowerTech, uh, which was great. We, whatever, we just kind of had to eat the cost of the molds. So that all went really well until we started delivering the first versions of the new hardware to our resellers and distributors. And what we found was that there was a chip soldering error. And so one in one in four of the devices was leaking battery acid out of the box. Oh no. Oh my God. Uh, that's insane. So I had to do a recall on those. <laughs> I don't know what we did, but yeah, it definitely wasn't good. Cause it's like, you know, you forget like with software, if, we ship something with with a bug, like we just go push an update, right? Hardware, not you, so much. You have bugs all the time, right? But with hardware, it's like, okay, so that'll be six to eight weeks and an enormous amount of money and we have to throw away everything that we built. And then, and then you got to rinse and repeat until you get the hardware, right? So, yeah. <laughs> well, eventually you did scale it and then there was an exit, an exit to Groupon. So, so how did it all come together? Yeah, so, so basically once, once we fixed the hardware issues or most of the hardware issues at least, um, and we had pivoted to selling the solution through uh, a network of distributors and re- resellers, mostly existing third-party resellers of point of sale and payments solutions um, to small businesses. So that worked out really well for us because they were all looking for additional products to add to their portfolios to sell. And we were looking for a way more efficient way of getting the product to market than, uh, than selling it directly. And so we were able to, we were able to do five times as much revenue in half the amount of time selling it through resellers as we did when we were selling it directly. So, you know, we, we, we went from doing like, you know, 800,000 in, in revenue in bookings one year with, uh, about eight salespeople, uh, you know, to doing close to 5 million in six months, <laughs> less salespeople. So yeah, we wanted to go raise another round of financing, but you know the offer we got from Groupon was was phenomenal. It was totally the right home for for the business, and um, and yeah, so so we got that deal done at the end of 2014. All right, well, let's talk about your current company, Electric. So how, how did you come up with the idea? Well, I was the IT guy at Swarm, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you know there were just so many times where, for example, like oh we're going to hire ten people and they all start next week. Well, then me and our operations manager in the office all weekend setting up laptops, mm-hmm. you know, and then fast forward two weeks later and like the Wi-Fi goes down three afternoons in a row. And so we have to send the salespeople home because we can't figure out how to get the Wi-Fi up and running again. Or, 
you know, our VP of biz dev wants to go sign a million dollar deal, but we have to fill out a security questionnaire. And like, I couldn't tell you for the life of me, whether or not we had a firewall, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. I've seen those. <laughs> and so I started, you know, so I started thinking about it and, and at the time we were, uh, we were a customer of Zenefits and I remember looking at the Zenefits product and thinking like, okay, if I can get my whole company up and running on payroll and benefits in an afternoon through a pretty simple SaaS platform, like, I've got to be able to do most of my IT stuff through a SaaS platform, maybe with help from humans, but like, what, you know, why isn't there kind of a Zenefits type solution for IT? You know, just basic stuff, you know, manage the devices, manage the network, understand and deploy your SaaS applications. Um, and nothing existed on the market. And so even before we sold Swarm to Groupon, I had the idea in my head, like, this is a huge business. And my hope was that I would, you know, basically we would sort of come to a viable conclusion with Swarm in enough time where I could go and then get electric. So at the time, I didn't even know what I was going to call it. But um, yeah, my hope is that I could get it, you know, sort of get this idea in market, you know, before I was late to the party. So, um, so yeah, so I left Groupon in the middle of 2016, moved back to New York City and, and just got to work on it. I love the payroll example because we use Gusto for payroll. And I just remember a previous business I ran, we were on paychecks and, you know, the ADPs of the world. And it was, it was like such a pain in the ass doing payroll. Yeah. And usually even, even with those, you would have to hire like some consultant to come yeah. in and like get it all set up for you. Yeah, like a yeah, I had the same experience. I was like, oh my God, this is such a night. And then you get your quarterly reports and is this, and I'm like, oh my God, and Gusto is just like, it works and it's a pleasurable experience. It's a great interface. Whenever I need something, it's easy to find. And I just love that company because it solved something that I want nothing to do with. I want my people to get paid, but all the compliance regulation stuff, I, I don't know. Just uh, please do it for me and I'll pay you. So yeah. I love that analogy because the same thing when like running, you know, a small business, like you want your technology to work, <laughs> right? And if something's broken, you want it fixed and then you want it done properly and done well. Now, Obviously, doing what you do, and actually, we should probably talk what does electric do as far as the core, but technology had to get to a point where you can do what you do now. So I guess talk about your business and how you help companies. Yeah. So, you know, think of us as an outsourced IT provider, but as a subscription software solution with some services um, as an alternative to either doing it yourself or, you know, working with a local traditional IT provider. So you know, with us, you get a dashboard that you can log into and you can see all of the applications your company's using. You can see all of your devices. Um, we are constantly updating an IT health score. So you don't need to know anything about IT, but you know a few things. You know that you don't want to get hacked. You don't want to lose a computer, um, you know, all that good stuff. And so we analyze that data and basically tell you on a scale of one to a hundred how it's looking. And if your score isn't, you know, as high as we think it should be, we call out recommendations of, of, of things that we can do for you. So for example, uh, easiest way to not get hacked is to just have two-factor authentication enabled for Gmail, as annoying as it is sometimes to, to do that, like you should just do it. So, you know, we integrate with your, you know, G Suite or Office 365 and we're constantly looking across all the users and basically saying like, does this look good? Does it look sketchy? Um, and again, even if you're a non-technical person, we'll tell you like, Hey, this doesn't look good. <laughs> um, you know, and, and then we'll, and then we'll take care of it for you. Right. So we'll have a list of recommendations and we can deploy two-factor authentication. We can make sure the firewalls go back up if they come down. And so then, 
the whole idea is we just do all this stuff in the background in an increasingly automated way that you just don't want to have to spend the time or money to, to think about. And you don't even have to talk to us if you don't want to. You can just log into the dashboard. Um, you can communicate with uh, support folks um, on our team through Slack or Microsoft Teams. You have an account manager. So if there's like, you know, hey, we're going to hire 100 people next quarter, you can call them and be like, hey, you know, what should we do? And um, they can kind of point you in the right direction. So, you know, the whole idea here was just take all of the things that people don't like about working with, you know, Bob down the street who shows up in his truck and, you know, has coffee breath and <laughs> handles your IT and charges you an arm and a leg to like, just make it a really clean, sleek software interface supported by really good humans. Yeah. And since most small businesses are using all their software in the cloud, you know, before it was like, you had to install it on each computer and then there was, you know, different versions or, you know, maintaining the network, you know, just like. I feel really lucky because I felt like for most of my entrepreneur, entrepreneurial career that all the good ideas were taken. Anytime I come up with something, I'm like, well, of course, there's 10 other people doing this. Like, you know, when am I going to actually get to the right idea at the right time? And yeah, with, with electric, it was just sort of like the, the, the timing worked out perfectly where when I was ready to start it, when the idea was crystallizing in my head, the market had finally caught up. You know, I couldn't have started this company 10 years ago because most businesses still weren't fully in the cloud yet. Slack and Microsoft Teams weren't widely used. So chat as an interface for ticketing wouldn't have really worked, uh, you know, either. And, and, and separately, businesses 10 years ago still weren't conditioned to solve problems by going on Google and finding a, a tech company to solve it for them. Um, nowadays, you know, the, the small business buyer is increasingly a digital native who doesn't care about working with Bob down the street and, you know, shaking his hand. What they care about is like, I just, I just don't want to think about it. I just want it to be easy. And then, so you talk about market timing. So you started the company, I think in 2016, right? Yeah. Right at the end of 2016. Um, and then we launched with our first four paying customers in January of 2017. Okay. And then all of a sudden, 2020 happens and remote work isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. So, uh, you know, there's different industries where disruption was waiting to happen and an accelerated disruption, that being one of them. So I'd imagine what that happened, you know, that, that, ha that, that happening to your business must've been just tailwinds of, of growth. It's definitely helpful. It wasn't, I mean, I think there's this misconception in the market that you know, COVID crushed a bunch of businesses and like massively accelerated other ones. There's a huge segment somewhere in the middle where it was absolutely helpful for the medium and long-term um, just kind of mindset of your, of your customer. It accelerated trends that were already happening, but it wasn't, you didn't have this watershed sales moment like, you know, like Zoom had, for example. That was, that was, that was a really unique um, they were a really unique beneficiary of, um, of, of work from home, but we, we would fall into the bucket of like the 20% of companies where we are a solution that is now more important, more useful and easier to understand in a, in a remote and hybrid work environment. And so, you know, when, when, when the COVID lockdowns hit initially, we had, we had an immediate drop off in sales, mostly because at the time for about a two month period, most small businesses were trying to figure out if the world was ending or not. They weren't buying anything. 
didn't matter what it was, right? Maybe the odd Zoom license so they could like talk to their friends and coworkers. But beyond that, nobody was buying anything for about two months. And then what was really interesting was we had this supposition that this would be good for us in the medium and long term. I think what surprised me the most was how quickly the market came back for our product. So <clears throat> we had an abysmal sales month. Uh, actually, it was exactly one year ago. So April, April of last year, I think we closed four deals in the entire month, which, you know, we're on, as of, as of the time we're recording this, we're roughly a $22 million ARR, you know, business. So closing four deals at an average of $40,000 a pop when you're doing 20 metrics don't add up. Yeah. It's not good. That is like really bad, not sustainable at all. But then, you know, so I think it was like 150 grand of, of, of new bookings last April, but then in May it was 500,000. And then in June it was 1.2 million, which was our biggest sales month ever at that point. And then, you know, and then as we got later in the year, all of a sudden we were having like million dollar months very regularly. And then now as companies are rehiring again and thinking about opening their offices, but still doing some remote stuff, you know, we had our first million dollar week this past quarter. And then we had another million dollar week, you know? Um, so I think it's, yeah, I think we would definitely be in that, that camp of companies where like a, given that we are the world's first kind of remote first IT solution for small businesses and, and we're the only company doing it, this is, is definitely worked out, you know, well for us. Well, you recently announced your uh, series C, so 40 million. So what's the current, you know, state of the business? Uh, you know, you kind of gave some data points, you know, just from the last question, but you know, where are you like number of employees, growth plans ahead, whatever you can share? Yeah. So, you know, we, we more than doubled the business last year. Um, we bought a company, we bought a, um, an NIT business here in New York, a fantastic, um, a little company. Uh, and that that's gone great for us. So last year was really exciting from that perspective in terms of, we did a lot of exciting things. The growth was really exciting. Um, I also had hired a bunch of new senior leaders at the business right at the end of 2019. And so interestingly enough, last year was our first full year, many of us working together and we often didn't really see much of each other in person. Um, but you know, 2020 or 2021 now, you know, we've all been working together for over a year. We've, you know, we really have a good understanding of the business and where we want to invest, um, how we want to grow, what, you know, some lessons learned. So the plan is to, to double again this year, maybe do a little bit better than that, uh, double again next year, but really just invest super aggressively in the software. I mean, at the end of the day, the more we automate, the better the customer experience is. Anytime we take one of, one of our human support desk folks out of a task, it gets done faster. Uh, and more accurately, and for us, our costs go down to serve. So it's sort of a win-win for everybody, but it's expensive. Building engineering teams is really expensive. So um, the $40 million round that we raised is really to, to, to fund aggressive investment in all of those products that we know our customers uh, want. And, uh, and yeah, so, so far, you know, we're off to, off to a great start for the year. No, the, the investment side, just kind of sidestep, um, a little bit. So you have like Dick Costolo as one of your investors. And it sounds like you were very, uh, you know, focused on getting investors that could give you great feedback. And that's like a lesson learned that I thought was a great point from another podcast that you talked about where you should leverage your investors with questions, not just looking for them to 
give you advice because they're they've got the magic wand, you know, like like so. So talk about how you structured kind of your you know your investors and how they added value to your business. Yeah, I mean, look, the biggest thing is going back to when I was seventeen, starting my film production company. Is I realized very early on that like if you just pick up the phone and ask people good questions, at a certain point you're going to start getting really good answers. And so I think I just for the for the last 17 years, I'm 34 now. So starting when I was about 17, like I just made a almost a daily practice of really trying to think hard about what are my biggest challenges, what are the things that are keeping me up at night, and really trying to form specific questions and a and a hypothesis about how I might go, you know, solve this thing. And then find the people who might be able to get me the answer. And frequently what I would find is people that you would think would be really smart on a topic and give you a very good answer might not give you a good answer. And so the other key is like, if you don't like the answer you got from someone, you got to keep knocking on doors until eventually you either ask the question differently, um, propose a solution differently, or just talk to enough people that you eventually, <clears throat> you know, you eventually get something back that's useful. And, you know, when I was, when I was starting my, you know, my film production company, like a great example of that would be, you know, calling that ski movie producer, Josh Berman and being like, dude, how did you distribute your movies when you didn't have a distributor? Right. Um, like that was this, like that fundamentally changed my ability to run that business by just ask, knowing to ask that question and reaching out to him and, and, you know, and, and doing it or when I needed to go raise sponsorship money, I raised up or I reached out to another, uh, mountain bike movie producer, this guy, Thor Wixom. And I was like, so what do I like, I'm running into issues with this or that, like, you know, whatever. Right. And just asked a bunch of questions and learned how to do it. And so fast forward to today, building electric, particularly as a first time CEO and, um, and a solo founder, I realized like the quality of my work and the quality of my decisions is going to be entirely contingent upon the quality of the people around me. And so I just made a point from the very early days of the company to just continue to build and iterate on a circle of people that I could constantly bring questions to. And, you know, the speed at which you learn is ultimately going to dictate how fast the business grows. That's great. Great, great feedback. The other thing that you've been very uh, focused on from the early days of electric is building culture. So talk about the culture at electric and then like, what should founders be thinking about from the earliest, earliest days of the company? I think my biggest challenge early on was that I didn't know what, what great looked like. I didn't know what excellent looked like. So most of the business problems we had in the early years of electric were largely failures of leadership on my part where, for example, I might've hired the wrong head of engineering. And so they may have had the right credentials on paper, but when push came to shove, like weren't delivering, right? And, and there were a number of instances where I made senior hires who really fit the right profile. You know, you'd send someone their LinkedIn profile and they go, wow, that person looks like a rock star. But at the end of the day, they just, they were either the wrong fit um, maybe weren't as competent as I was led to believe, or they seemed ultimately that's my fault, right? Like I'm in charge of making these decisions. And so if I make the wrong call, like it's not my fault. It's not, it's not the candidate's fault that they can't do the things that I want them to do. It's my fault for thinking they could and not knowing better and still hiring them and continuing to employ them long after it's clear that, you know, things aren't working. And so, you know, our, 
think our culture in the early days was in part challenged by that because it's really hard to have a positive, supportive, exciting culture when you don't trust that people are going to get the job done. So like that, that, that really created a lot of like culture, kind of culture headwinds early on. Once I finally sort of flipped the switch and said, okay, whenever we have business problems, we really need to assess like, do we have the right people in the right role? You may have people who are great. They're just not great for the thing that you're expecting them to do. And, you know, it wasn't until I hired our, our head of people, Jamie, um, this is back in, I think it was like October of 2018, where I finally had a partner in the business who could really assess talent um, and, you know, who could really kind of be in the weeds every day looking at like, is this manager doing the things that are just going to enable their direct reports to be successful? If they're not, well, then you're going to have a bunch of unhappy direct reports and you're going to have a manager who's ineffective, right? Um, <clears throat> all those things. So that was probably the single biggest turning point in our business was just getting the people side of the equation, right? And that's so key. Cause if you don't have the people side, right, you're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> well, so. people, and people, you know, what? people have been telling me that forever, investors, other founders, the problem is if you don't know what excellent looks like, if you don't know what a really well-run, well-executing team looks like, then you're going to, you're just going to have to make a bunch of mistakes and have a bunch of stuff blow up in your face to learn what, you know, good, bad, and ugly looks like. And, 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 and only then are you going to be in a position to really get the kind of team together that's going to lead you to the success that you want. Yeah. Now, what about branding? Like the one thing that I noticed with electric is it's just, I don't know, like as soon as you go to your website, you're like drawn in, it's, you know, the, the logo is sharp. Um, you know, it just, it seemed like brand was a big piece of, of building the company. So, so what advice would you give to other founders on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would basically say that in any industry, you have an opportunity to be memorable and to, and to stand out. And it's, you know, really easy to just sit down on a, with a piece of paper and come up with like a, a fake word that doesn't mean anything to anybody. Um, and it's really easy to just have a designer make you a logo that is the same, you know, shade of light blue as, as every other tech company. But at the end of the day, like all things being equal, the best marketer is going to win. Um, you know, you, you, you need to strive to build a, a great product that people love. Um, but there are also plenty of examples of people who have won purely on marketing, even though the product isn't all that different from, um, you know, any other product on the market. I mean, you can take a really, really generic example, take a product like LifeLock, which is depending on who you talk to a largely useless product, um, you know, but they're a phenomenal marketing company and, you know, they've got like most of the American population over the age of 50 using it and like, it's only you know, based on fear, <laughs> you know, and it, and it just kind of is what it is. Um, you know, so I think in a, in a space like ours, that's just like inherently not that exciting, like outsource IT support, you know, what we said was if, if, if we're really going to do something different and everything about what we do is kind of the opposite of the status quo, then like, no, calling it, you know, giving it some generic tech company sounding name is really not going to tell the right story in the eyes of the customer or a potential employee. And so a really memorable name that sort of fits in a kind of tongue in cheek way, like electric, um, you know, a, a, a color palette that 
stands out and is unique. I mean, we kind of, me and my head of sales uh, almost three years ago now, we were brainstorming what we wanted to do for like the next phase of the brand. And like, I think like the only mood board kind of things for the mood board that we gave the ad agency was uh, a pair of, of Nike basketball shoes. Uh, they were called the South Beach LeBrons. So it was a pair of basketball shoes that was like, you know, like pink and teal and gray. And then it was the cover of the movie Drive with Ryan Gosling. So he's like sitting behind the wheel of a car. It's really dark. And then it just says Drive in this pink script. So I was like, that would be bold. Nobody would be expecting that from an outsourced IT company. And if you do it in a way where it's still somewhat sophisticated and respectable, you know, it won't look like we're not taking this stuff seriously. And so, yeah, it's been, it's, it's been hugely helpful in our sales and marketing efforts. What about staying focused? One of the challenges of building a business is you've got people that come to you saying, Hey, we need that, but we need it like this. So how do you stay focused and staying on your lane of the type of customer that you should be servicing and not getting distracted with chasing revenue and other buckets? Well, one, we did in the early days and it wasn't good for the business. Um, in 2019, we had about a million and a half dollars of customers, uh, of ARR worth of customers that were coming up for renewal that we ultimately just elected not to renew. I mean, you know, we worked with them to find new partners and, and this and that, but often the, the customer that is a great fit for you when you're a 10 person company, just kind of wandering around in the desert, learning about who you are, is not the same customer that you would have chosen to sign up when you're a three or four year old company and really have a better sense of what you're good at and, and you know, who's a good fit for you. So we had to bite the bullet early on because every dollar we spent supporting a customer who was a poor fit um, you know, was, was time and attention taken away from the customers who were a good fit. So it was, it was really tough to do. It was a tough conversation. Well, I thought it was going to be a tough conversation with my board, but shocker, they've seen this before. And so when I called my board members one by one and said, Hey, I want to take the plan down a little bit and, um, and just kind of, kind of clean up some things around here. They were extremely supportive, um, of it. So that was important. And then the second thing was, having a really good head of sales who's got the maturity to work with our head of customer success and our head of product and our, and our CFO and stick to guidelines of what does a good deal look like? What does a bad deal look like? Why do we think that, you know, um, we want to close as many deals as we can, so long as they're good for the business. So, um, you can chase revenue. The problem is when you start getting into a routine of, agreeing to really suboptimal contract terms when you get into like really heavy discounting when you're um, agreeing to do things that are on the roadmap but like on the roadmap in air quotes and like you know really bad behaviors that can that can ruin a company over time I mean, there's there's a couple companies here in new york who i won't name um that got to you know, 30, 40 million at ARR and the bottoms just completely fell out of the business because it was 30, 40 million of ARR built on bad deals, high churn, you know, customers with missed promises and, and eventually you got to pay the piper. So, you know, we just decided to do that uh, early and, you know, it was the conversations like that are uh, kind of bitter in the beginning and sweet in the end. <laughs> Whereas signing bad deals are sweet in the beginning and bitter at the end. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are three apps you can't live without? 
right now it's well okay so for 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 work i mean i'll just tell you what i'm what you know what i'm looking at right now uh is going to be the most boring thing ever it's it's slack zoom and gmail but in my in my personal life if i pick up my phone uh you know right now i would say the three are going to be the peloton app so for working out uh spotify and yeah peloton spotify and soundcloud Nice. Yeah. I would say Peloton and Spotify are like two of my top right now. Like I just got my Peloton about a month ago, five weeks ago. And they just, they just crushed that experience. I mean, like I've always heard great things, but experiencing it, I'm like, wow, this is such a great product and overall experience. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? You're obviously busy building a company, but when you have some free time. I am. Uh, I've always been a car guy. Um, and so, so that, that keeps me pretty busy. Uh, I got into racing a couple of years ago. Um, so there's a track about two hours North of the city. Uh, and so, yeah, basically from like April to October, there's like club races every weekend and it's probably driving a race car is probably one of the most complex activities you could do for fun. Like I've, I've flown an airplane a couple of times and I would say in terms of complexity, it's up there, it's up there with flying, but you're also going, you know, at times 150 miles an hour around corners. And so it's sort of like, it's got all the complexity of like flying or sailing, but with sort of the adrenaline rush of, you know, skiing or snowboarding. So. Got it. So you're still in the extreme activities. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. I, you know, and then, and, and then in the city, you know, I, I, um, when it's warm out, I, I ride my bike a lot. So, you know, I think like a lot of people, you know, road cycling, particularly during the pandemic was just like a really easy way to, to get out. Um, sometimes when I go ride by myself, I also have a track bike. So it's a, uh, it's a bike with, with no gears and no brakes and a, and a fixed gear. So the only way you can slow down is by actually using your legs to, to sort of force the bike to slow down and uh, stuff like that, that probably ranks a little bit higher on like the, the risk scale I found is also the easiest way to clear your mind. So very, very cool. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great stories, of course, what you're up to with electric and all the amazing advice. Uh, this was, this was a lot of fun. Looking forward to doing it again. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.